This is The Feed. From Markham. From Richmond Hill. From Vaughn. From Aurora. East Gwillimbury. Whitchurch, Stouffville. From everywhere you are. This is The Feed, York Region's only news magazine dedicated to the issues, events, and stories that matter to all of us who live and work here. Welcome to The Feed. I'm Ann Romer. On the show, The Burnout Report, Signs and Symptoms, a fundraiser for a service dog, and homes for heroes. But we begin with the Canadian Medical Association. COVID-19 vaccinations for kids 5 to 11 were approved here in Canada back in November, but the uptake has been slow. It has become a race against time as Omicron roars across our nation. Our children's health is at risk. To that end, January 27th has been declared National Kids and Vaccines Day and Science Up First, a coalition of scientists, researchers, healthcare experts, and science communicators, is holding a virtual town hall to answer the many questions and concerns that parents, caregivers, educators, and even some of the kids themselves have about the vaccine and the virus. Dr. Catherine Smart will be part of that town hall. She is the president of the CMA, Canadian Medical Association, a pediatrician, and a mother of two. Thank you for joining us on the feed. Thanks so much for having me. So, Dr. Smart, the Globe and Mail article that you wrote uh, published August 16th, 2021, so about five months ago, here was the headline, quote, to protect our kids from COVID-19, we have to be grown-ups, end quote. I like that. What did you mean by that? Well, I think we, you know, throughout this pandemic, it's really been important for adults to think about the impacts of children. And I think so often what we've seen is us not always making policy decisions that prioritize child health or, or how the impact uh, of the pandemic has been on children. So what I really want to see is adults is us taking the needs of kids seriously uh, and making sure they factor into the decisions we make as we move forward. So we've uh, had approval for kids 5 to 11 uh, to be vaccinated, but the uptake has been a little on the slow side. Why is that? You know, it's so interesting. Even before the vaccine was was approved, we were hearing from parents that many were hesitant about whether or not they were going to vaccinate their child. They hadn't decided they didn't want to do it, but it seemed that the sentiment was they sort of wanted to wait and see. I think what's really encouraging right now is we've now had over 8 million doses given in North America to children, 5 to 11, with really very minor side effects. So the safety of the vaccine, I think, is even more clear now. And we're also seeing how protective it is in terms of preventing the rare but severe outcomes in COVID. So I'm really hopeful that um, as we promote the vaccine, try to answer the questions of parents, that we can overcome that hesitancy and see the rates of vaccination in kids 5 to 11 start to increase. And how powerful, how important is that protection for that particular age group as we continue to fight this pandemic? I think what's really clear is vaccines are safe in children and they provide excellent protection against COVID and the possibility of a severe outcome. You know, I think it's it's important for parents to understand you know, for most children, they are not at risk of having severe COVID. For most children, it will be a respiratory virus like many other viruses. But some children will potentially have severe outcomes, and those can be prevented with the vaccine. And much like all the other diseases we use vaccination for, um, that's the goal, is to really prevent those rare but serious outcomes. And when you have a safe alternative, you know, why would we want to be taking the chance with the infection itself? 
The other thing I think that's encouraging about the vaccine is it's also protecting against some of the post-COVID complications like the inflammatory syndrome and things that we're seeing. So I think there's a lot of benefits to vaccination. Um, And given how quickly Omicron is spreading and knowing more children are being exposed to it, getting kids vaccinated is a huge priority. So the decision, yes or no, to vaccinate your child is, it seems, completely up to the parent, the caregiver. That's right. And and of course, you know, we always want to respect parents' decisions when it comes to the health of their children. And I think parents are always wanting to make the best decisions for their families. Our job, I think, as health communicators and pediatricians and other physicians is to be there to answer those questions and help parents make decisions that are rooted in science and facts. How do you feel about mandatory vaccinations for that age group, for instance? No, I think that's it's challenging, right? Um, there's some positives of, of vaccine mandates, and we've certainly seen how they've driven up the vaccination rates in the country. Um, I think right now, with where we're at in this rollout, we really want to make sure we're investing the time to answer people's questions. The risk, of course, of a mandate is alienating people and, and alienating parents who may feel that a health decision around their child is being forced on them and that their own decisions aren't being respected. And in the long term, that can have negative consequences as well. I think we're still really at at the phase of this rollout where there's a lot of work to do to answer people's questions, to make sure they have the best information. And then when we're weighing things like mandates, you know, we have to be be sure that we think that the benefit there um, outweighs the potential of the negative feelings that it can create in the population and potentially undermining trust in families going forward. So I don't think most experts feel that right now we're in a place where mandates are the next step for children. Might it be something down the road? Um, I think that's to be determined. But right now, I think really the job in front of us is making sure that we're reaching people, we're answering their questions, and we're giving them good information. So we hear messages, and we heard earlier this week from both Ontario's health minister and from Canada's top doctor. So here's what we know uh, in terms of the health minister, Christine Elliott, on Wednesday saying that the province is starting to see the glimmer of hope, adding that there are signs of Omicron stabilization. She says Omicron is expected to peak this month. We also have word from Dr. Teresa Tam. She also earlier this week said that the Omicron wave is pushing the pandemic toward an endemic state, meaning COVID-19 would continue infecting people without disappearing. Both of these messages from top health officials kind of muddy the waters when it comes to parents making decisions about vaccinations for their young children. Well, I think really what it does is it it gives that message to parents that COVID is probably here to stay, much like many other infectious diseases in children, and vaccination is going to remain the best way to protect your child against those rare but potentially serious outcomes. So, you know, I think most experts don't think COVID is going to disappear. Most people do feel it will become endemic. Um, And I think for me, that's just one more reason to vaccinate is you're protecting your child for the long term. So here's my question, Dr. Smart. A parent hears the message telegraphed earlier by the Ontario government, the health minister, saying that there's a sense of stabilization when it comes to Omicron. Would that not give a parent license to say, well, then I don't need to vaccinate my child because this is almost over, this particular wave? Well, I think, you know, it isn't almost over. I think what they're trying to say is the exponential phase of cases is perhaps coming to an end. But we have to remember there's still a lot of downside to that slope as those case counts come down. And many people will still 
get infected. Um, so it's not over yet. I think what they're trying to communicate is perhaps we've reached the peak of that exponential rise. So I certainly don't think we're out of the woods in terms of being people uh, with Omicron infection. That's going to continue over weeks and months. And I don't think that we're done with COVID in a permanent sense either, which is, again, all the more reason to vaccinate your children is it's going to be around for months years, perhaps. Um, and vaccination is likely to provide that ongoing protection against severe outcomes. And that's really the point of vaccines. I want to look ahead to National Kids and Vaccines Day. It's Thursday, January 27th. And let's set the stage for the Science Up First virtual town hall. You are participating. You are gung-ho about this. What is your message? What will you be trying to get across to those who are participating in this virtual town hall? Well, I think it's really exciting to, uh, to have this opportunity to answer the questions of parents, to talk to parents about and kids about vaccines and how they work and the importance of them. I think the message we really want to get out there is that, you know, this is incredible that we have this vaccine available for children. It's working very well. The safety data, and the more we're learning about it as more people are vaccinated, is just how safe and effective this vaccine is. Um, so I think really this is just a chance for us to try to answer those questions, address hesitancy that people may have, uh, give people good information if there's things that they're wondering about. I think what's really been exciting, one of the pauses of the pandemic is now that we're learning how to create these virtual opportunities and to be able to engage people on a national level, which is something we didn't really do before. Um, so I, I think it's a really neat opportunity for families to get to hear from experts across the country who all are experts in child health, experts in infectious diseases and vaccination, and really feel like they're getting the most credible information when it comes to their health decisions about their children. So this takes place later on in the month, on the 27th of January. And again, the time is ticking when it comes to trying to to protect ourselves from COVID-19 and in particular for Omicron. Do you think that your message might be coming out just a little too late? You know, I think that we all hope that the vaccination rate for kids this age climbs quickly. And, and I think we all hope that we would have seen more uptake uh, than where we are right now. Um, but I, I think there's, you know, it's never too late to try to get good information out there. And I think the positive thing about where we find ourselves now is we do have just a lot more experience with this vaccine that we can share with families. And I think that's really important in terms of addressing hesitancy, because certainly the biggest reason that was identified before the rollout for hesitancy was parents just not being sure because they didn't feel like we had enough experience yet with this vaccine. And now I think arguably we do. So I think we'll be able to hopefully lay a lot of those concerns uh, to rest um, and make sure that people have the right information to go to go ahead. Dr. Smart, you're the mother of two young-ish children. When you put your head down on your pillow every night, what are your thoughts about how and, and why your children have been inoculated? Well, for me, you know, there was never any question that my kids would be vaccinated. You know, as a pediatrician, I've been a pediatrician now for over 20 years. I've had the opportunity throughout my career to see the incredible impact immunization, vaccination has had on child health. It's really changed the landscape for children. Um, and it's an incredible scientific advance that arguably has done the most for child health. Uh, of any of the interventions that we have in medicine. So I am a huge believer in vaccination. My oldest is 13, so she was able to be vaccinated uh, back in June, and, and that was huge. And my son, who's 11, was really excited for his turn because he wanted that same protection for himself, for his grandparents when he gets to visit them for his community. Um, so I'm really grateful that he's had his first uh 
dose of the vaccine and we're looking forward to getting a second dose at that eight-week mark. So for me, it just gives me that huge sense of relief. You know, I know I'm, I'm very fortunate. Both my kids are healthy. I know the chances of them having a severe outcome from COVID is rare, but I want to do everything I can to prevent that possibility. And I feel that having them vaccinated is the most important part of that. The Science Up First virtual town hall, of which you are a big part, is coming up on National Kids and Vaccine Day, Thursday, January 27th. Dr. Catherine Smart, how can people register? Yeah, so it's it's quite easy. It's on the Science Up First website, so you can go there. And the the URL is www.scienceupfirst.com forward slash kids dash vaccines dash day. And you can register there, and we hope to see you, and we'd love to answer your questions. Dr. Catherine Smart, President of the Canadian Medical Association, thank you for giving us your time here on the feed. Thank you so much. After the break, the Wellness Together Canada Project. Do you have a story idea for the feed? Call us at 416-335-1059 or email info at 1059theregion.com. Ann Romer and more of the feed coming up. This is 1059 The Region. Welcome back to The Feed. I'm Ann Romer. According to a new report, more than a third of Canadians are experiencing burnout. Healthcare workers top the list. Kevin Frankish with that story. Well, Ann, I'm, I'm going to tell you, I'm feeling kind of unenergetic today. I, I feel burned out, but am I really burned out? That is something that is becoming more and more important to know as this pandemic wears on and on and on. And that is, are you burnt out? What are the signs of burnout? Well, there's some new research out that shows that a third of all Canadians are reporting burnout. The study was done by Workplace Strategies for Mental Health, and Marianne Baden, Director of Collaboration and Strategy, joins me right now to talk about burnout. Hi there, Marianne. Hey, Kev. How are you? I'm burnt out, Mary. At least I think I am. I, I don't know. I don't know. Um, so that's what we want to talk about right now. Because I know when we talk about things like depression, uh, we can be depressed, but do we have depression? So we can feel burnt out, but are we suffering from burnout? So let's really set some definitions and some parameters here. What is burnout when it becomes concerning? So- Yes, and the World Health Organization has provided us with a definition. It is that it's a syndrome conceptualized as resulting from chronic workplace stress that has not been successfully managed. And they say it's characterized by three different factors. One is feelings of energy depletion or exhaustion, that you have an increased mental distance from one's job or feelings of negativity negativism or cynicism related to your job, and reduced professional efficacy. Now, let me translate all that into real life because I'm somebody who's experienced burnout. When they talk about exhaustion, I was mentally, physically, and emotionally exhausted, no matter what time of day it was, even if I had just woken up after an eight-hour sleep, I was drained. And in terms of cynicism, 
I wasn't just cynical about my job. I was cynical about everybody. Nobody cared. Nobody uh, had my back. Nobody was there for me. It wasn't true, Kev, but it was certainly the way I felt. And it's everybody else's, everybody else's fault. Yeah. And if you had told me I wasn't effective at work, I would have been up one side of you and down the other because (laughs) I was working so hard day and night and I was producing so much. Now, the fact is there were a lot of errors and it wasn't good quality. (laughs) It also wasn't even things that I needed to do. I just couldn't stop. I was just like wound up. And what somebody describes it as, wired and tired. Ah, yes. And, and, you know, right now you're not going to get a lot of sympathy though, because as we drag into, what are we, three years into this pandemic almost, uh, or it feels like that, um, you know, everyone is feeling something like this right now. So we have to be able to recognize this ourselves. That's the very first thing. And then work towards uh, you know, working on it ourselves in a lot of cases. Yes. I always say there's two sides to this. As somebody who's burned out, in retrospect, I realized that I had a lot of opportunity to see the red flags and to stop it, and I chose not to. On the other hand, as a leader, as an employer, I would notice the signs and I would not allow my employees to get to the place of burnout. I would start putting in protective factors to help them. So there's two ways. Nobody could have stopped me from burning out because I wasn't listening. But as an employer, we have uh, authority and we can help prevent it. And in order to do that, we have to recognize it first. So if you are a team leader, if you're an employer, and we're going to start there, but we're going to get down to to the workers themselves. If you're a team leader, you're an employer, what are the signs you're watching for? I want to see somebody who feels that they're never good enough, that they've never done enough, that they're um, beating themselves up about work that is good, um, and that they are... Um, you see the signs of fatigue, you see that they're exhausted and you know that it's impacting um, their health. So as a leader, I can see that. What happens sometimes is these often are overachievers, you know, people with poor boundaries that want to do it all. And we could just let them because their performance is often the last thing to go. So we can let them keep producing. We can let them keep going until they crash and burn, or we can recognize it and stop them. And there's also the danger here of burnout leading to other serious issues, such as uh, irritability, going home to your spouse and taking it out on them, or drinking drugs. Which, which we call coping strategies. They're just not healthy ones. <laughs> Right? Is that we're going to find a way to stop this incessant negative thought. And so we'll use whatever means is available. And if we can learn the means that are healthy, taking a break, getting up and walking away, 
stopping work after so many hours in a day that we can use healthier coping strategies. Uh, just this month, in fact, at the uh, the new uh, just after the new year, Ontario's new law that prohibits employers from contacting their employees uh, by email after hours came into effect. Uh, is this a good step, or what more do we de- need to do? Well, it's a, it's a shame that we have to legislate <laughs> letting people have their personal time. But um, I, I understand that for some, that is the only way that it will change. Many employers, and uh, you know, certainly the ones that I deal with um, through my work, they want to do the right thing. But sometimes you have employees whose own worst critic, whose own worst um, pressure point is themselves. And so what we have to do is teach how to recognize it and how to prevent it. Because it's not enough to say we want you to have work-life balance. If we don't model it, if we don't enforce it, then it's um, probably not going to work. So, you know, what, what could be the end game here for someone who does not recognize it and take care of burnout? Okay, I'm burnt out. I got a job to do. Everybody else is burnt out too. I'm just going to suck it up and push through. What are the dangers of that attitude? Well, the biggest danger is that burnout takes months or even years to recover from. When you are physiologically depleted, which is what burnout is. It takes so long to get back to that level of energy that you enjoyed before that I really hope people can listen to this, can see the evidence and say, I'm not going to go there. I'm going to bring myself back from the brink because one or two days or even a week of feeling low energy is not burnout. But when that's going to continue, um, ongoing, it's going to have really negative impacts. All right, so let's get to treating this. Things that we can do for ourselves and when to actually reach out for help, such as doctors, as medication, as uh, as, as psychiatrists or, or other um, uh, counselors. And um, the, like, you're probably going to say silly things like exercise, better sleep, and, and better diet, right? Is there any other way? <laughs> Yeah, because first of all, when I was burned out, I was not going to be going out and exercising, and I was only eating what would get me through the day, which was mostly sugar. Mm -hmm. So you telling me that at that time wouldn't help. But here's the things that really did help me and that I use now to avoid going back there ever again. One is that I slow down the way I think and the way I talk. And the way I move, because as I was approaching burnout, all of those things were faster. My mind was racing all of the time with the things that I needed to do, the things that were undone. I was even speaking more quickly, which irritated people around me. <laughs> okay, so we, we see, especially in the, uh, the health sector, that that seems to be one of the highest rates of burnout, and I can, I can see why. Uh, finance, legal, insurance, education, childcare, first responders, a lot of uh, burnout there. 
And, you know, we, we talk a lot about that kind of burnout and, and, and that. But what about those who are uh, working at the grocery store? Uh, those who are, who are working in factories, who have no choice but to get on crowded buses to go to work. They, they just have no choice uh, to do that. It might be a little bit more difficult to deal with burnout for these people. And yet, I mean, 35% is all Canadians. Like, we look at people that are in retail trade, and they're at 33%. So none of us are immune from this right now because we're all going through a life-altering situation where we have little to no control. Well, you know, that just makes us ripe for stress. And the thing about it is, we know that this too shall pass, but what shape are you going to be in Mm -hmm. when things get better? And nobody could have stopped me from burning out, but now I can stop me and you, Kev, can stop you from doing it. And you can also just, you know, slide right into it and then deal with the repercussions that are going to last you months and years. All right. I'll tell you what, Marianne, take a big, deep breath with me right now. (sighs) I guess that's a start. Yeah. uh, Kev, 60 seconds, set it on your phone, close your eyes for 60 seconds and just breathe and you can restart your whole mind, your whole day, just 60 seconds. So start there. Maybe one day you'll do meditation for three hours, but start with 60 seconds. 60 se- I tell you what, let's do that right now. All right. So everybody <laughs> who's listening right now, now you're going to hear dead air for a minute. I'm going to set a timer for one minute and during this time, what should we be doing, Marianne? So you're closing your eyes because that's trying to reduce the stimuli, mm-hmm. right? Burnout is too much stimuli. And you're not trying to keep your mind empty. You're just trying to not be attached to the thoughts. Just let them happen. Let them go. So it's all about relaxing and closing your eyes. Okay. So here we go. We're going to do this for one minute. Like I say, this is not something you do on radio very often is let let a minute go of dead air, but this could actually be a start of something. So everybody, close your eyes. I am starting the timer right now. When was the last time you had that much silence, Captain? <laughs> it doesn't happen very often. I do some meditation, so I do experience that from, from time to time. But I do know that just doing something simple like that with, 
you know, with nothing else in mind other than just relaxing your mind for a minute and being quiet, it, it certainly is refreshing, you know, even in the middle of the day. Yeah. And you think about a car, right? You're running it all the time. It's going to run out of gas. Mm-hmm. If you just stop that mind, and it doesn't have to be for a long time, you, you get refreshed. All right. Yeah. So thanks for doing that with oh, everyone. Well, and yeah, and so that's just a start. And you can do that anywhere, anytime, on the subway, streetcar, whatever. You can do it anywhere, anytime. Marianne Bainton, Director of Collaboration and Strategy, Workplace Strategies for Mental Health. Thank you so much for this, and let's hope it's the beginning of something for a lot of people who are burning out out there. Yes, thank you, Kev. The COVID-19 pandemic has also caused social isolation, financial insecurity, substance abuse concerns, and racial inequality. Tina Cortez with the Wellness Together Canada Journey. This project is described as collaborative, bringing together a wide network of organizations to tell us all about Wellness Together Canada is Sean Slater, Executive Vice President, Revenue and Customer Experience. Welcome to the feed, Sean. Thanks very much. So take us to the beginning. How did Wellness Together Canada start? Um, it's actually quite an interesting story, at least as far as I'm concerned, because I've, uh, I've been in this business you know, 20 or 25 years, and I've never seen something come together so quickly uh, as Wellness Together Canada. Um, back in March, uh, at the beginning of, uh, of COVID, um, the government, Health Canada, very quickly realized that there was going to be some mental health-related needs uh, across the country that were not going to be able to be met by uh, the systems across the country, and there was just going to be an influx of, of need. Uh, so they very quickly um, put together a, a request for a proposal process, uh, forwarded that out, and we came together, Homewood, uh, with uh, Kids Help Phone and Step Care Solutions to propose a solution that we called Wellness Together Canada. Uh, and that solution was uh, approved and selected by the government um, by Health Canada, uh, and that would have been um, middle to late March uh, of 2020. And like I have never seen before, uh, we stood up this program uh, for all of Canada uh, within about uh, two or three weeks. So by the by the second week of April, I think uh, we were live for all Canadians. What types of services are provided? Sure. Uh, well, it's it, it's First and foremost, a web-based portal, uh, wellnesstogether.ca. Uh, and when someone goes on to wellnesstogether.ca, uh, uh, they're invited to um, create a profile. And as part of creating their profile, do a little bit of an assessment. And assessment gives them kind of baseline understanding of where they're at with a number of different um, facets of their kind of mental and social health. Uh, and as a result of that, um, serve them up uh, a wide variety of options that uh, that can uh, address whatever it is that they think that they what they need, and that could be anything from articles and e-courses to self-directed uh, programs for cognitive behavioral therapy or mindfulness, uh, group uh, and peer support, all the way up to twenty-four hour live text-based, phone-based, and video-based counseling. 
uh, for anybody, uh, any age, uh, any part of the country, uh, English and French, and available uh, in many other languages through kind of instantaneous translation. That sounds amazing. So 24-7 help in multiple language, that means no one is really left out. How does it all come together? The, the federal government, the Public Health Agency of Canada, the uh, the partners in delivering this service, you know, we all uh, spend a fair amount of time in early days sort of collaborating on what the solution might look like. And we spend a lot of time in kind of regular communication with all of those stakeholders and we've added stakeholders to the process along the way, so various communities. So, for example, we've added different supports for um, healthcare professionals, for example. Uh, we've made sure that, uh, you know, First Nations uh, and Indigenous folks uh, could find something for themselves uh, on the portal as well. So we're kind of always open to um, dealing with or, or providing support to communities uh, who are uh, in need um, and in some cases, you know, responding to issues like, you know, floods in BC or other, you know, types of things that we know are going to lead to mental health uh, challenges for folks in those areas. And how are the resources accessed? Is it all through the website? Yeah, so up until uh, this week, actually, uh, it was all through wellnesstogether.ca, and you would access there uh, and then, you know, connect via telephone or text for uh, for the counseling services or video. Um, but this week, uh, the uh, Minister for Mental Health and Addiction, Carolyn Bennett, uh, uh, announced the release of PocketWell, which is the companion uh, mobile app to wellnesstogether.ca. So all the things that are available on the web-based platform are now also available uh, through a mobile app called PocketWell. How do you determine what kind of help goes to the person at the other end of the line? Uh, that's a great question. And I think part of it um, is that this, this program is based on what we call a step care model. And the step care is really providing a range of services that meet people where they're at. Um, so it, it's as much about what they might be interested in, um, uh, what type of uh, service they're interested in using, as much as what type of service they need to be accessing. So if someone is, you know, kind of dipping their foot uh, into uh, into the pond for the first time, you know, they might feel much more comfortable with a self-directed program. And so there's enough to uh, on the portal to uh, appeal. Uh, to the various things that people might be interested in, whether it's the modality of, uh, of service, which would be, you know, kind of self-directed versus live counseling versus, um, you know, sort of uh, more kind of reading or, or um, exercises type thing, um, right down to, you know, do you prefer to have counseling by video or by text or by phone? Um, so it, it's really, uh, they're an active, the, the, the Canadians are, in this case, an active participant in determining what type of service is best for them because they know themselves best. And I know you can't list them all, but who makes up the wide network of counselors, specialists, organizations? Can you name just a few? Sure. So we rely heavily on the, uh, you know, the, the team uh, at Kids Help Phone and at Homewood Health, uh, who have a uh, 
both have a uh, wide and deep network of, uh, of different counseling specialties about uh, of different uh, um, types of counselors, uh, folks, you know, that uh, sort of cover the uh, age and gender and background, sort of that whole spectrum, uh, so that, you know, if a person uh, really does um, need or want to speak to a, a specific uh, a person with a specific kind of background or specialty, we might be able to make that happen. And is there a fee associated with these services? There's no fee ever. So it's fully funded by the government of Canada through Health Canada. Uh, and uh, there is no fee to sign up. There is no fee to use the service and no fee to continue using the service. And that's the, the benefit of Wellness Together Canada is there is no fee and there will never be a fee. Sean, if our listeners need help, where can they find it? I think the easiest place to find it right now is at wellnesstogether.ca. Uh, about twenty to 30,000 people a week uh, come to wellnesstogether.ca. Sean Slater, thank you so much for joining us on the feed. Thank you very much. When we come back, Homes for Heroes. Follow us on Twitter at 1059 The Region. Ann Romer and more of the feed after the break. This is 1059 The Region. Welcome back to the feed. I'm Ann Romer, the Homes for Heroes Foundation. The headline on their website reads, Not All Heroes Have Homes. And listen to this shocking and sad statistic. As many as 5,000 military veterans are homeless and living on the streets of Canada. These brave men and women have dedicated their lives to saving ours by protecting our freedoms. It's time we stepped up and gave our veterans the support and respect they need and deserve. David Howard is the co-founder and CEO of the Homes for Heroes Foundation. An honor and a privilege to have you with us today, sir. And as the proud daughter of one of Canada's oldest veterans, I thank you with all my heart for what you're trying to do. No, my pleasure. Thanks for having me. So... What is your mission? What's your vision when it comes to Homes for Heroes? And why did you start this? The mission is simple. is to end the issue of veteran homelessness. Uh, we have those that paid, um, that stood on guard for us. Uh, they're living in the street, and now it's our turn to stand up for them. So that's why Homes for Heroes exists. Um, I am involved with it because uh, my grandparents are involved, my father, my grandfather, suffered with post-traumatic stress, and um, I've seen firsthand uh, what that can do. Such a sad and startling statistic. More than 5,000 military veterans are homeless right now in Canada, and I'll bet the numbers are even greater as a result of the pandemic. Why does this happen? Well, I think the numbers are greater. I think that's a, a count done by our Canadian government, um, but it's done in shelters, and, and veterans are proud, and they're not self-identifying. So, I think that we're talking about more like 8,000 to 10,000. So why it happens, it's um, a, lot of it, a lot of our tenants are suffering with post-traumatic stress. And a lot of that comes and creeps in um, after service. And they find themselves retreating to the streets uh, as a safe place for themselves, something that's familiar to them, and to protect their loved ones, to not have them not see them in this pain. 
Why is it so difficult, do you think, for military men and women to transition from the force to civilian life? Well, I think that you're finding that about 80, 85% of those in the military are transitioning with no problem. But for that 15% that, you know, end up on the street or are struggling, um, you know, they come out of the military. It's a very structured life. And they come back and there's no planning that goes into it. So suddenly they, the world's open to them. But the simple thing is make sure you're getting a bank account, getting a resume together, planning for your future. How do you apply for a job? How do you put the resume actually in front of someone that shows that your skills are transferable? So there's a lot of barriers for some. And again, we're also dealing with some people that, uh, that have brain injuries. And, and that's what post-traumatic stress is. It's an injury. So your mandate is to build, equip, and operate tiny home villages for veterans right across our nation. So why tiny homes and why villages? Well, the goal is to build tiny home villages with full wraparound support services. It's key that support services there. So tiny homes, um, look, and a village concept is that we're creating something um, like a barracks, all inward facing. Tiny homes is a manageable space. Uh, too many times, homeless groups are using apartments, six, 800 square feet, too big for uh, people coming off the street with uh, very little possessions. Um, they try to fill the space. They end up hoarding, and then with hoarding becomes shame. And then with that, you could be introducing a whole host of other issues, drugs and alcohol. So we developed our plan uh, in consultation with over 200 vets that I actually sat down with one-on-one and said, what do you want to see in a program? And that is what Homes for Heroes is. You've got some underway, and some uh, are ready to go. Calgary, Edmonton, even Kingston, Ontario. Why did you decide on those particular cities? Well, it's, you know, we're, we're going to the cities that need the support the most. We're also working with, we bring all levels of government together here. This is the federal government, provincial government, municipalities, uh, corporate sector, and individuals. We, as a whole, as group, we have to be able to solve this problem. We can't just shift the blame and say it's a federal issue because really the cost of somebody living on the street is borne by the province and, and, and the cities. But really, as Canadians, we have the freedoms that we have because of the sacrifices made by these men and women. So I believe that we owe it to them. It has to be a group effort. On your website, and I was captivated by it, the Villages for Veterans, here are some key points. 15 to 25 individual tiny homes arranged, as you'd mentioned, in forward-facing but in a park-like setting. All homes face inward 300 square feet but fully equipped. Each village has a resource center, counseling office, and community garden. Each of the villages, or each of the homes, I should say, is named after a fallen hero. You've put a lot of thought into this, a lot of heart. A lot of research went into it. I think that the the issue that I've seen, I've been involved with veterans and working with the supporting our veterans transitioning for more than 20 years. So it's important to go to the source. Uh, I think too many times there's groups that start organizations and charities um, with a great idea, uh, but it fails because they actually haven't, um, develop the idea in partnership with those who are going to use it. So I think that's important. Um, naming our homes after our fallen is um, a way that we can respect, uh, pay tribute, and it's a way for the family to feel honored. And 
we also use it as an education tool. We bring school groups on site and we tour them through the villages. At what stage are you now with the tiny home villages? So yeah, Calgary were open, Edmonton's open open already, just opened uh, December 1st. Uh, Kingston, our goal is to open by the end of the year. We're incredible support by the city of Kingston. We have a volunteer committee there uh, that has been absolutely amazing. And the province of Ontario, uh, I can't speak highly enough about them. The process has been seamless. So then we're moving and we have Winnipeg moving. And then the goal, again, is across the country. And what's been the response so far from the veterans who are living in the tiny homes, those that have been erected? You know, it's been incredible. I mean, Calgary's been open for just uh, two years now. We've had 10 graduates. So I want people to understand this the program is a transitional one because that's what veterans asked for. So these graduates came in, there was a needs analysis, understanding who they are, a program put in place for them. They worked that program. They started to transition. They got back on their feet. They got supports for reasons that got them on the streets. Then in turn, they, they joined the workforce, and then they found more permanent housing to make room for the next veteran. So, um, you know, it's been very successful. Uh, but at the same time, it's not for every vet. I mean, there is vets out there that, uh, you know, they just want uh, a home and, and to be left alone, and, and this is a transition program. David, where are the families of the veterans through all of this? Well, uh, in some cases, uh, they come right along with them. Others... Uh, they don't even know that some of their their family member is suffering. We do have a family suite at our villages. And what that does is it, families are invited to come and stay at the village and be part of that healing. And they can do that for a couple of days and work with their on-sites and be part of that peer-to-peer programming, programming which is so important. So like, we want to integrate and get our vets back with their family reconnect with the family so it is a mission of ours what's changed when it comes to your view of veterans through your process through all of this for you how do you look at veterans now well you know as i said i've been involved for a long time but um always strikes me is that um, their care and want for others they put the needs of others before themselves uh, my grandfather you know sadly uh I caught eating dog food, um, and I was disgusted. I was like, "How? Why aren't we getting you help? Like, why aren't we? Why aren't you at a food bank?" Well, food banks are for women and children; they're not for soldiers. And that just stuck with me forever. And they will put their needs ahead of everybody else. And um, it's time that now we put their needs and, and their well-being in. in at the forefront. What can those of us who care, who are listening to what you're saying, understanding what it is that you're trying to do, what can we do to help? Well, simple thing to start is thank any person that served our country, thank them for their service. We don't do that enough. If in turn you know of somebody that is suffering, direct them to the Homes for Heroes website. If in turn you want to support us financially, you can do that through the Homes for Heroes website. If you'd like to do, volunteer, you can do that as well. Uh, spread the word. Let people know that we're here. Um, we're not, we are building across the country. We need land, though. I mean, that is a big thing. We need an acre of land for every village, and, and that's uh, important. It has to be in communities uh, um, that are willing to bring us on. 
David Howard, co-founder and CEO of Homes for Heroes Foundation. I know you don't want to hear this from me, but I'm going to say it. You are a hero. Thank you for joining us on the feed. Uh, It's my pleasure. Thanks for your time, and thanks for everybody's uh, caring and attention. Jim Lang is next with the life-saving fundraiser for a service dog. By now, everyone's heard of service dogs. There's service dogs for many different things. Uh, But I didn't know there were service dogs for people with epilepsy. And there's a a young woman in Newmarket who has done some great work over the last few months with her new service dog, Cable. She is Newmarket's own Amanda Robar. I'm proud to call you a fellow Newmarket resident. Amanda, thank you for joining us in the feed. Thank you for having me, Jim. Well, this is fantastic. And I know about service dogs for um, stress, anxiety, uh, for people with a visual impairment, hearing impairment, uh, diabetes. How does an epilepsy service dog work? Well, it is a very long process. Uh, The program starts when the puppy is eight weeks old. And first of all, you have to do temperament training with them to determine what puppy from the litter is going to be the best service dog. And that can be tossing the dish on the floor and seeing how the puppies react. Are they startled? Are they inquiring? Like, what is this thing? What is the noise? But they have no little reaction. And you want a dog that's going to inquire about what's going on, but at the same time, not be startled. And then you also want to see if the pup comes to you when called. And because they don't have a name at this time in their uh, life, all you do is, cheer puppy, cheer puppy, <laughs> clapping your hands and calling them to see if the dog will uh, come to you. And then if they will engage in things like tug and basic reactions to other people, because at this time in their life, they've only known the breeder. Now, Once the pup is chosen, they head off for two years of intensive training where they learn to focus strictly on the handler. Hmm. And they have to ignore all other distractions around them. So this could include other dogs playing discs right around them, the dogs running around, um, and their job is to do what the handler is asking, such as going under objects, such as chairs, benches, tables, ignoring food on the floor, hitting an emergency button to call for help, which this is a very important one, um, and pulling the bathtub plug. Again, very important. And once I get cable, because uh, right now she is still in training until October, I will work with her on preventing me from crossing into the street. Because sometimes when someone has a seizure, all the time, I should say, their brain takes over and they don't have control. Oh. So, but yeah. So I um, had seizures in the past where I would just walk out and not even know that I was doing that. And uh, so my service dog is in the past and present. Kramer and Kira will stop me from walking out into the street. And I have a special leash that goes around my waist. And 
this way, if the dog thinks I'm headed too far, they'll sit or stand and they will not move and I cannot go any further. Wow. Uh, yeah. So, uh, they, and sometimes, uh, Kira won't even let me cross a crosswalk if she hears a car in the distance. Are there certain, and, uh, are there certain breed of dogs better than others for this kind of service dog, Amanda? So, yes, um, I've only had golden retrievers myself. There are also, um, labs, but, um, so far I've found that golden retrievers have been the, uh, the best for me anyways. Incredible. Now, I, I know for a lot of people, when they think of some of the epilepsy, they think of a seizure and someone on the ground. Does the dog protect you? Make sure you're okay. What does the dog do in that kind of uh, situation, Amanda? So that's the interesting thing, Jim, is when people, as you said, think about seizures, they think about someone on the ground. Um, that's not necessarily the case because oh. there are a wide variety of uh, types of seizures. And for myself, I go temporarily blind, so I can't see. Sometimes I can respond, other times not so much. Uh, if my seizure progresses into a longer one, then I can lose my balance. So Kira will brace for me. I can put my hand on her shoulders or grab her working uniform and lower myself safely to the ground. She will also guide me to benches or chairs so that I can sit down and not be wandering per se. She'll let me rest. And uh, this way I can recuperate because the other thing people don't really think about is the post-ictal state. And that's when you're disoriented and just you need to rest and think because, as I said, your brain has taken over. And sometimes you don't even know where you are. Like, you have an idea. You sort of recognize your surroundings, but not 100%. So you need to just kind of look around, see where you are, try to figure out, how am I going to get back home? And uh, that's one thing that my service dogs have been trained to do is guide me back home if I'm disoriented. Um, there are lots of things. Well, for, forgive, forgive my silly question, Amanda. All I know about medicine is from Chicago Fire and Chicago Med, and I've just been educated. Uh, thrilled to be speaking with New Markets' Amanda Robar, who has epilepsy and has done great work with service dogs. Now, you had to raise a, a large chunk of money to get the money for Cable, your new service dog, to go to Rough Sports and New Tecumseh for the training it takes to be a service dog of this uh, level. How did the community come about to help you raise the money that you needed? Oh, gosh. Um, I have... The community is just fantastic. Jim, as you know, Newmarket is a fantastic spot. I grew up in Aurora. Again, right next door. Fantastic community. Uh, I have friends and, uh, of course, family in various different places. And uh, they they know about my epilepsy. And they just stepped in, stepped up, and said, like, how can we help? And uh, some things we did were fund the fundraising wheel, uh, and people from different businesses would donate something and uh, we'd recognize them 
on the wheel and uh, it could be restaurants, um, small businesses, like a Good Vibes on Main Street. A- everyone just kind of said, how can I help? You know, Amanda, I look at someone like you, and, and if I'm a parent and I have a child with epilepsy, I look at you as a role model, as a mentor, that's someone that with the proper education, the proper service dog, you can live such a fulfilling life. Do you ever think about the impact you're having on the people in the community, in the region, in the province? I I do. I think about my very first service dog, Jim, and uh, it was sometimes a bit of a a fight to get into places but um because service dogs are allowed to go everywhere that you go so restaurants and stores things like that and um there was a big educational piece when i had a kramer as they said oh no you can't come in with the dog and i said here's the letter stating that he's a service dog read it over if you so desire kind of thing and uh then i would start going places and people would recognize me and they would say oh hi oh how's your body i don't see him here <laughs> kind of thing and sometimes yeah and uh same with, with kira and sometimes i would say oh yeah no she's not feeling well but you know i i have mom or whoever with me and uh oh i hope she feels better soon so it's uh it's really great because they they look, they see me, and they know me. And then uh, other people at restaurants, all of Kelsey's, and then we have our vet um, in Richmond Hill, uh, or Oak Ridges, I should say. And I said, oh, this is probably the one of the last times that you'll see Kira. And my vet was like, no! Oh. <laughs> yeah, you'll, you'll be meeting Cable. <laughs> like that. So... It's uh, it's been a very interesting journey. Uh, Amanda, I can't tell you how thrilled I am to be able to speak to you and share your message with our listeners. And I, I know you do some great work on social media. Please uh, let people know about your social media account so they can follow you and follow your journey with epilepsy and your new service dog, Cable. Oh, absolutely. You're on. Uh, so, you, what is what is your Twitter handle and Facebook and Instagram? How what is your, the the proper, um, I guess, uh, Twitter message you have? Is it at Amanda Robar? Uh, I believe it is. Tim. I would have to look it back up. <laughs> but um, yeah, you, I know, I know. It's uh, it's uh, <laughs> I, I've changed some things uh, a while ago. So, but yeah, definitely if they type in Amanda Robar, they'll probably see me with my. My dogs and whatnot, especially on Facebook. You really make me proud to live in Newmarket. Amanda Robar, R-O-B-A-R. Check her out on social media and look for her in York Region with her new service dog cable. Amanda, thank you so much for doing this and all the best this year. Oh, thank you very much, Jim. You too. If you missed any part of our show, please go to 1059theregion.com or wherever you get your favorite podcasts, including Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, Amazon Music, and Audible. I'm Ann Romer. Thank you for listening.